0: The end is near. You expect, when you hear that, you expect someone to be wearing a sandwich board, maybe a little less, less clothed than I am right now. So we can be thankful that you heard that in the manner in which I delivered it. The end is near. The end of all things is at hand is actually the way Peter says this in chapter four, verse seven. Now, this is... A very sobering statement, I mean, if you're in a relationship with someone and they say the phrase, I think we need to talk, if you're dating or something like that, we know that probably what's next is similar to that person with the sandwich board saying, pay attention, the end is near, this is about to be over. How many employers have had to go in and walk into boardrooms or their staff meetings and things and say, we've come to the end of what we do here. Very sobering words. They're very startling, heavy words for us to take in. The end of all things is at hand. And we've been saying now for the last couple of months that Peter has been delivering this message to us in a tone of urgency. The, in a tone of, the clock is ticking, much in the same way as a coach will draw the team in at the end of the game, and he'll say some of the most fundamental, straightforward, basic things, because he knows that his team's emotions are running high, that they're Fear and insecurities are running high, even if they're talented players, even if they've been here before, there's this personal responsibility and this fear that wells up. We say, I hope I don't blow it. I hope I can pay attention to what the coach just said. And what does he do? He goes through the basics. Depending on the sport you're talking about, he'll say the most fundamental things and then he'll prioritize him. He'll say, we're going to focus on this, this, and this, but we don't get there unless you do this part really well. If you do this part really well, then the rest of the things will kind of play out as the game finishes up. And there's only seconds on the clock. And the team is drawing in close to hear what he has to say. So with one phrase, Peter is seizing his readers' attention. They're scattered all around the region. And he is doing this to lead them from a place of dislocation to abounding hope. Which is what we've said, the entire theme of the letter that Peter wrote is about finding a living hope, a hope beyond your circumstances, a hope beyond even the physical world that you're walking through right now because we're exiles, we're sojourners, we are on a journey to the destination that we've been promised. And Peter is actually saying the circumstances that you're in, the instruction I'm about to give you is in the context of of a world history that will matter down the road. Now, we've heard this before, right? Every time somebody wants us to to feel passionate about something, they always put it in the place of world history. What you do right now will matter for generations to come. We're we're in the thick of of an intensely uh, uh, contentious uh, d- political season. And what do they always tell us? Every generation, I mean, every four years, every two to four years, this is the most important election that we've ever had. And if you care about the future for your children, you will do thus and thus and thus. And so the tone is always, the urgency is, it's not just for now, but it's also for later. So Peter knows what's going on here with the church. He knows what their future is going to be. He's already told us in chapter one, in verse five, he says that the believers that who, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So he's saying this is, this is building up to this moment. The revelation of this is going to happen on your watch, Christian. Jump down a few verses to verses 10 and 11. And he says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So for hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years, as the prophets were receiving the message, they were preparing for a time they wouldn't even experience. Peter's saying that time has arrived on your doorstep. All of their inquiries, all of their ponderings, all the things that they couldn't quite make sense of, they were preparing that for you. The clock is ticking, church, he says. Verse 11, he says, they were inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So as they're searching, they're saying, who is the Christ going to be? How will he come? What does it mean that he's going to suffer? Uh, who for? Why? And then how will those subsequent glories be revealed? Church, the clock is ticking. This is on your watch, he's saying. And last week we said that we have the urgency of this message for ourselves also because right now people desperately need hope. And if we're being honest, you and I do too. It's easy to say us versus them. It's easy for us while we're here, sort of in the safety of our community of like-minded individuals, to say, yep, yeah, they need hope. But the reality is you and I do every single second. We've we've just lived through a week that we're really not sure yet how to process. We don't know what all the events or the circumstances that we experience. We don't know what it means. We don't know how they'll all play out in the end. And so we are just as needy of hope as anybody that has never even heard the name of Jesus Christ. But the the great news is that uh, the letter that we're studying today, we're doing this on purpose so that the hope that comes to you and me, we can give to others as well. Because people desperately need hope we also know that they need connection we have we have endured a season of isolation we have been enduring a season of disconnection and so people desperately need you and i to demonstrate represent the touch of their of 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 the lord jesus christ who compassionately reaches out to those around him we get to demonstrate that and people are desperately searching for purpose And we've been discussing this, especially in the last couple of weeks, how you and I seeking the will of God and following in the steps that have been laid out for us is demonstrating the purpose that you and I have. And we have to understand that that is what is sorely lacking in the world today. Where do they find it? Where does purpose come from? Getting back to work, paying down the mortgage, getting the kids to college. What is it? We know that all of those efforts are fleeting and leave us hungry and wanting more. Where does purpose come from? So Peter is setting his reader's purpose and their perspective on things not yet to come. What you do in this moment as the clock is ticking, team, get closer, get closer. As you focus on the fundamentals of what we're about to do, you are preparing for yourself hope and, and a settled heart for a life to come. So that's why we said setting your heart on heaven settles your heart on earth. We know that we are not going to experience all that this life has to offer yet. That isn't our goal, that isn't our aim, that isn't the affection of our hearts, or at least that's by God's grace we hope that it isn't. So Peter comes to this section by saying the end of all things is at hand because he wants our attention. He's not just being dramatic. He's certainly not being um, uh, 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 predictive in the sense of he knows the time. He's not walking around with a sandwich board in a way that people don't trust him. Peter's been through some things. Peter has failed a lot in his Christian walk. He's matured out of those failures so that as people are listening to him, they say he knows something because he's walked with Jesus. So the question becomes, what is the coach telling us as he's huddling us together? And he's going to say, here are the fundamentals. And Peter lays out for us a few. And we'll break them down as we go through them. The first is that he's telling us to settle our minds. Engage your brain. Get your thinking squared away. He continues in verse 7. He says, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, this is a running theme in Peter's writing and certainly in Paul's writing and most of what we see in the New Testament is 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 setting our minds right to become self-controlled to exercise the disciplines that keep us away from the things that discourage us and, and and drag us down and even the things that sent our Savior to the cross so that's not new right it's not fancy it's not revelational to us in the sense that we've never heard it before so it sounds a little bit like that coach saying get the ball Work hard, beat out your component, run faster than them. And you're like, I'm an athlete, of course I know that. But we need to be reminded of these things. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. And sobriety is such an incredible part of The Christian life. And it's not uh, a discussion about uh, alcohol and everything, but the the, uh, image for us is so close to what we experience and what we know in our society today. To have clear thinking, to not be lazy in our approach, to not have anything throwing us off our game. Wearsby says that this phrase has a lot to do with a reference to the wild prophecies that were being uh, propagated and thrown all around. And remember last week we talked about where do some of these weird errors come from? Why is it that people always want to take what is true and just give it a little bit of a twist? And they seem to stir up. In fact, we were told that in the last times these things would be happening all around us. And I've referenced for you before, there are all kinds of YouTube channels getting a lot of views off of wild speculation that draws in because it's really intriguing when we start to say, what if? What if that were right? So Peter is saying to instead of chasing down these wild speculations or the things that we're just not sure or certainly the things we can't control, rather than living there and getting all stirred up, getting all off balance, Sober yourselves. Specifically, the the opposite of the use of this word is frenzy and madness. Do we not see a frenzy around us? As we look at some of the chaos of our own lives, are we not going, where did this frenzy come from? Where is this insanity uh, coming from that it's, it's stirring up and brewing up? And so he says, therefore, center your mind on the things of Christ. Clear your thinking, settle your brain, because it will impact how you pray. He says, for the sake of your prayers. Now, one of the things that we often confess is when we come to our prayer time, we have a tendency to wander, do we not? We so often say, well, I sat down, I want this new discipline of prayer, and I really want to focus. And as soon as I close my eyes, I picture everything but what I'm praying about. Or if I pray with my eyes open, because there's nothing in the Scripture says you can't, um, as I pray with my eyes open, other distractions happen in things. Or the, the hurriedness of my mind from my lifestyle comes in and forces out those thoughts that I want to have for the Lord or towards the Lord. We ask the question, what's the prayer to panic ratio in your life? One time I had asked for some cooperation along the lines of with all of the, uh, we, we know it's no secret to us that scrolling through Facebook feeds is an addictive behavior and that it becomes one of those things where we feed ourselves on the thinking of all that's going on. And um, I, I know I noticed this myself when I don't have my my own personal account, but I'm able to check on, say, my wife's or we go on the church's page and stuff like that. And every once in a while, 10 minutes goes by and I found that my thinking as I came into that page a little bit more positive, a little bit more optimistic. By the time I come out of it, I'm feeling quite blue, quite discouraged, quite heavy. It's not a message on the evils of Facebook or anything. It's just a warning. This is what Peter is getting at. When your mind isn't sober, when you're not focused, when you come to the things of the Lord, and when you come to the Lord with the things that are on your mind and on your heart, what does it sound like? If Jesus comes to you and says, what can I do for you? What do you want? What's your answer? Uh, well, give me a second. Can I can I think about that? Can I I want this. No, wait, no wait, I don't want to waste it on. Do I get three wishes? How many do I get, Jesus? That, that's where we start to get to the understanding of what a sober mind that impacts or is effective towards our prayers. That's where that shows up is if Jesus were to say to me, what can I do for you? My first step is I know exactly the thing I would ask. The second thing would be, do you know whether or not that thing is in the will of God? I have plenty of things in my heart that I would love for someone to give me. What I don't know all the time is whether or not I should even dare ask for them. I don't know if they're the things sometimes that Jesus would honor or use well in my life. And so there's a lot to this idea of being sober-minded, of of being self-controlled, so it's not all about what I think I need in the moment, but but fighting towards finding out what is the will of God trying to accomplish in my life? And am I praying in those ways? Remember, the coach is saying, we're going to settle in. We're going to focus our minds. We're going to be sober-minded because when the, when the ref blows the whistle and the crowd starts getting excited, there's a lot of pressure on us to do this right. So Peter continues in verse eight. Above all, this is the coach prioritizing. The first thing, team, I want you to do above everything else, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus had already said to his audience that Peter had had a front row seat to in John 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're also to love one another. By this, we always love to pause and emphasize here, but we need to. By this, by what? By our love for one another, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, not your advertising campaign, not the size of your church, not the, 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 the clicks and the likes and the views on your Facebook page by this, by what? By the love that you have for others, will others know that you are my disciples? So I think Peter is saying for us to settle, not just our minds, but our hearts. Now, biblically, theologically speaking, they are kind of one and the same. But for our purposes here, point number two would be for us to settle our hearts, to direct our affections in the right place. This is where I think the crux of all of this is. Please hear me when I say this, that when, when others have said, what's going to be the vision of faith and what are we going to do to, to weather the turbulent days that we're in and everything, when we come to places like this, this centers us on what this is going to be. The, the form and the practice and some of the activities, they'll take different shapes over the years. But if we walk away from this, we can just kiss the future of this church goodbye he says to settle our hearts how so what does it look like what is what is the the um the love that he's calling us to do above all it's earnest this is an athletic term it's related to endurance it's a love that keeps pressing forward that keeps moving into what's next an earnest love now you and i have been guilty of expressing an unearnest love we have certainly received unearnest love before to where it seems like it's going strong while everything's good don't we say this in the the honeymoon phase of relationships to where we click, we understand one another, we like the same things, we agree on the same things. And this isn't just in romantic relationships, but in friendships, in working relationships. Everything seems to take off great at the beginning. But once love becomes something to endure and press through and practice and wrestle with and, and get better than what the, the way it happened before, then we kind of check out because the feeling of the beginning is really fun. So I'm going to walk away from this and go start something new with someone else. Peter is saying, team, get closer. We're going to be persistent in our love. He's not just saying love. He's saying love moving forward. That is a key ingredient to do what he's saying next. Because he said, love one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins how against our flesh how against our wishes how against our feelings to allow our love to cover the offenses of someone else love is forgiving and and we get this part a little bit squirrely because it seems a little bit like what peter's saying is just sweep everything under the rug don't correct don't strive for clearer boundaries or lines or anything like that. But Peter isn't saying that. What he's saying is don't go into the typical human response when we're sinned against of broadcasting, rehearsing, and drawing a list of bitterness that you can't even get over yourself. This is coming from a phrase in Proverbs ten twelve, where it says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all transgressions. You and I can't love perfectly. You and I can't forgive people's sins in the, in, to the extent that they're now clear and square away with God. So that isn't the covering. You and I forgive, now they're no longer guilty. That's not what it is. You and I forgive because we have determined we are not going to make the person continually pay for what they've done to us. This is also expressed in James chapter five verse twenty, the encouragement in this uh, book on, of wisdom. It says, "Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." We're not sweeping things under the rug, but refraining from broadcasting the offense and then fanning the flames of bitterness. My willingness to move beyond offenses that have been done to me. That's that willingness to cover sins. My willingness to do that releases aspects of control over my life that I so desperately cling to. I want to manage the outcomes. I want to make sure I'm going to be safe. I want to make sure I'm secure. But what I'm demonstrating, if I'm willing to let these things go, is I'm demonstrating a quiet trust in the only one who is even capable of truly protecting me. So Peter continues, team, come in close. We're going to love people earnestly. We're going to forgive them. In verse 9, he says, we're going to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I love how he keeps waiting it out. He's not just saying love. Be hospitable. He's qualifying it in the way that we go about it. He's cutting off our flesh, if you will, before it even has a chance to engage. If you're going to love, love persistently, love in a way that doesn't quit, doesn't give up once it gets hard. If you're going to show hospitality, don't just serve a meal and don't just help somebody, but do so in a way that even when you naturally just want to say they don't even appreciate it and never even said, thank you. Can I get an amen from moms? If you're online right now. I don't have a good hashtag for this. Anybody got a good one? I don't have one. Moms come up with one hashtag us on this idea of why don't they even say thank you? The plate is dropped. They run out of the kitchen. They just move on. This is what we experience. We give of ourselves and what we get in return is very short of what we anticipated and what we thought. So Peter is saying our love is to be hospitable and it's to be hospitable in a way that is without grumbling. This is actually addressing a a great need of the day that Peter is writing because hospitality was becoming a more and more foreign concept. They didn't have the inns and the, the motels and all the things that we would expect. And so travelers relied on the graciousness of others. And what Peter is saying almost as a church outreach strategy He's saying, as you see travelers coming to town, open up your home. How practical is that? He's saying, while you're tempted to freak out about your, uh, your circumstances, while you're tempted to feel disconnected without having a centralized church or disconnected from having a, a government that represents you and all these kinds of things, instead of sitting there mourning what you've lost, go and find what God has equipped you to be. This is, of course, going to stand out to those around you because you show up at the town square and say, we've got a place for you to stay. And they're like, who does this? The question for us as believers in Jesus Christ is what keeps us from opening up our home or opening up our time or sharing our labor or our wallets to help somebody. If you're like me, you've got a ton of practical excuses. It's not knowing where the needs are. Boy, I'd love to help. I just don't know who needs it. I'm not sure how to get connected to that. Or uh, as most of us are doubting the fact that the need is real. What if I'm feeding a problem? What if it isn't really a legit need? Or perhaps it's like not thinking that we have the space in our life or we don't have the room in our home or we don't have the extra money right now to give. And, and so we just kind of keep pushing it down the line. Eventually, the space in my life will open up and I can be the person I've always wanted to be, the person I thought I had the capacity to be. So Peter is saying the clock is ticking. What if all it took was getting started? What if all it took was once the ref blows the whistle and the team is requested out on the court that it was a roll up your sleeves, we're going to get the job done, we're going to play this game. We're not waiting for the circumstances of our our lives to make it more obvious. Now, from a selfish perspective, this is not being presented to us based on what we get out of it. Peter is doing a phenomenal job keeping the church on the mission of this is for the glory of God. He's going to say that to us at the end of our text in verse 11. And so he's not saying that this is for our benefit. But we know that hospitality is this mysterious antidote to losing our mind when everything else around us is crazy. It's so incredible, this, this magical power, I say tongue in cheek, that when we're freaking out about our own circumstances, the minute we get, we open up ourselves to what someone else is going through and make ourselves available to serve that need, how we walk away just going, man, it, what do we say? It felt really good to get involved. It felt good to help because of the way that the Lord has built mankind. His collective grace over us allows us to serve the needs of others, even though we have a million excuses why we need to take care of matters in our own home. And yet we still get some kind of charge out of this. That the Lord still is gracious enough to say, and I want you to feel the blessing of having done that. Learning to let go of what you have, what you've put so much trust in, for your own comfort and safety helps you see how well God is able to provide for you. As you let go of the thing you're clinging to and you say, Lord, let's not pretend to be spiritual giants about this, right? Sometimes I've read the books and everything and giving was the easiest thing and I just do it And my mindset. I'm like, how? Every time I want to do that, a new bill comes in. Every time uh, I want to do that, something else comes and thwarts my desire to want to do that. How is it so easy for some? The reality is it's not easy for most. And so as I learn to let go of the thing that I've put a lot of trust and comfort and safety into, I start to see that the Lord's going, I got you. You don't have to worry about this. That's why Peter says that love is hospitable and it is serving. He finishes this thought for us in verses 10 and 11. He says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, We've come to this verse before, back when we were first starting uh, in Peter, because we wanted to wrestle with this concept of what is this, what is this way in which God shows his grace? We come to him with all kinds of complexities. We come to him with all sorts of mess-ups and all sorts of things that have been done to us and that we've done to others. And we doubt, because we're human, that God can meet all of those needs. And so Peter drops this little phrase in there to give us hope. He says that as each has received a gift, that is a gift from the, it's, a, it's actually a reference to a spiritual gifting that we're given, and, and, and Paul really um, explains the use and the, the types of these gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, and 14, 12 through 14, so you can check that out, you can dive into that a little bit deeper, a lot of our small groups go down that path to determine what gifts they've been given and how they can serve the body and things, it's a very healthy exercise. As each has received this spiritual gift, use it for somebody else, is what Peter is saying, as good stewards of God's multicolored grace. That's what varied means. So in all the different ways that I need God to come and and fill in the gaps and cover my sins and and fix the situations in my life, that he has that varied grace, that multicolored, all the aspects of, of the color spectrum are covered by his grace. So Paul uh, Peter gives us two service types that he's zeroing in on. He says one, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, and then two, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Just very quickly now, if if someone is going to speak as though they are speaking the oracles of God, I believe there's a two-edged sword or a double-weighted application to this phrase the first is a weight of respect that the listener is supposed to engage in so as we're hearing someone speak of godly things we're saying this must be coming from the lord now we've run into all kinds of trouble with that have we not in history i speak for the lord I am the re- the reincarnated Jesus, and all these kinds of things, and people run with that for authority. But in the context that Peter's talking about, he's saying, as it is, as it is uh, provable in Scripture, as it is orthodox in doctrine, as someone speaks, they are speaking the oracles of God. And as we listen, we say, the Lord must have something for me in this. But then there's this also this other weight that comes that the person who is delivering the message has to walk in humility. Even James says in one that teachers incur a stricter judgment. So as one who speaks, one who's been gifted to speak, better understand that they are representing the voice of God for people who are humbly ready to receive it. And don't trip on that. Don't abuse that uh, authority don't abuse that that openness that people have given you into their mind and into their heart so that's what peter is focusing on here if you're going to speak do it with respect on both sides of the microphone second thing he says as one who serves serves by the strength that god supplies that we are to wait upon others with such determination. We go back to earnest love when we think about this, a persistence that it demonstrates the divine strength and supply of God. I was really fascinated to hear this word supply explained this week that it's kind of like being a follower with a dance leader. That somebody who takes you and kind of, I don't have anybody have any ballroom experience. Come on, don't be shy. I want to see hands. OK, so awesome. Uh, so as you're either leading or being led, there's a movement there that you're either responsible to lead or you're responsible to receive. And so the word that's giving us uh, the, the word that's being translated for a supply is coming from a God who wants to lead like in a dance relationship. I've got this follow my lead and it will be enjoyable for both of us. So as we give ourselves away, as we spend ourselves in service, what we will experience is a God who comes and picks us up and says, you've got more to do, but I'm not going to just command you go out and do, 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 and I'm not going to come in and lead the dance with you. Of course, I'm going to do that. And I'm fascinated by the fact that Peter is tying these practices to the duration of time that he says the end is near. These are the last days. And we know that the last days have now gone on for about 2000 years from the time of Jesus resurrection. We've been in the last days. And so what Peter is saying is that even though he instituted these things, uh, or at least a uh, um, uh, coached these things some 2,000 years ago, that uh, these things are not a passing fad. That what worked then and what the focus was then as the clock was ticking is still our sufficient focus for now. It is appropriate for the circumstances of our day. We are in such strange times. We are in such um, uh, a gray area in terms of the health of the the church, capital C, we are in such contentious times where, where everybody is looking at one, uh, the same situation and they're coming at it from two completely different directions. And yet they have just about justifiable almost um, uh, fact and data to support their case. And we're like, they're, they're just missing it. What's wrong with them? And the people that you love and respect are coming at it in other ways. And I don't know if you've sensed this too, but I run into conversations with, with people that I'm close with and I'm like, if we keep going down this path, this might fracture this thing forever. And so it's difficult to navigate. How far do we go? Do I need to prove my point so that I win? Do I need to prove my point so that I that I just feel like there, I'm standing for the right thing, and then I lose this relationship that has mattered to me? These are the days that we find ourselves in, and the church is not immune to this. I don't know what kind of um, uh, gossip channels that you're in. I'm in very few of them, and so a lot of the times I find out what's really going on with what people are thinking and saying much, much later than when it's actually happening. And uh, at risk of um, just peeling the, the lid off a little bit, and some of you that might be visiting with us or watching online and stuff. I don't mean to sound like I'm trying to air dirty laundry or anything, but I think it's time that we start speaking very plainly about the situation that the church is in, both the collective universal church and ours here in Waterville. Why? Because the coach is pulling us together in this text saying, the clock is ticking and I want you to hear what our instructions are going to be. I think the the church's great tragedy of 2020 is not just the hindrance to what we call being able to do normal ministry, and we are hindered, and we're feeling it. We're exhausted by it. We're frustrated by it. I'm saying goodbye to the people I care about and love because of this singular issue and how it's playing out. So we are feeling the sting of it but I don't think that is the greatest tragedy of 2020. As we go through this thing called COVID-19, our ability to just come back and do normal ministry and have big crowds and all that sort of stuff is not the biggest thing that we're facing. It is the ugly exposure to our lack of unity as a body. We have lost the ability to disagree. We, we have forgotten that we are a family and that families fight, but they fight like siblings We're going to punch each other and then we're going to hug it out. We're going to forgive each other. I'm going to fight you, but nobody else better lay a finger on you. We have forgotten that we are a family in the church. This is a generalization and I'm going to confess to you that this has been a little bit more um, concentrated in these last several weeks as people are coming back from summer vacations and things like that and they're trying to figure out where they stand with all these things as we get into a shift in, in in mental clarity as we come into the fall and schools are trying to open and all those things. And so it seems like in the last several weeks, a lot of people are trying to make up their mind on where they're coming down on these things. And we've lessened our commitment to the building up of the body and we can walk away from it at a moment's notice. A statement that I've been sharing from time to time is that leaving your church is not the same as unsubscribing from an email list. And that is sometimes the way it feels, not for all. I've had some very difficult conversations with those who have come in to see me who have emailed me, who have called me, and my respect for them is immense because they haven't just tucked away and slipped off. I appreciate those who will confront. I appreciate those who will wrestle to get to the truth or to see what the real heart behind decisions are and those kinds of things. Even if we don't agree in the end, my respect for how they've gone about it is uh, is heightened. And so we have these questions before us, and I'm hearing so often now from people, so what are we going to do now? Are we just waiting? Are we just holding on? Are we just praying that the church comes back the way that it was before? And I would say, no, we're certainly not doing that. All indications are that that's a mistake for any church to do, let alone one that has gone through its own transition before COVID even happened. So what are we going to do now? We're going to build an action plan based on the things that we've been teaching in First Peter. Yes, it will have elements of submission. Yes, it will have elements of encouraging us and buffering us up to be prepared to suffer. But we will engage in tenacious love. We will engage in a way that, that moves us forward, even if sometimes we don't feel like it's being reciprocated. We will serve in a way that shows to others that we are being led by our dance partner, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. We are trusting God for his outcome for our lives. We will get back to the essence of what makes a church a biblical church, what it makes, what makes it a church. We're going to uh, rebuild based on biblical conviction. We've never strayed away from that at faith. We've always made that our highest priority. That will never change, is that we will know the scriptures. We'll know where we stand on the issues of the day that we face. We will educate and encourage our people to grow in their conviction as well. Just candidly, I've needed some time to find some of my own convictions. All the things that we've been brought through over the last couple of years, things that I thought I knew, things I thought I stood on, needed to be tested. We all need to be tested. We all need to be brought through a thing to know what we really stand on, to, to know what we really care about the passion that would pour out of our lips. We need to build on biblical conviction. We need to fight for personal connection in a day that makes it really convenient to just walk away from it all. You let me know when we can have church back. You let me know when I can actually be in close proximity with people again and all that kind of stuff. Until then, I'm hibernating. That's the temptation that we all face. We will fight through personal connection. I was so encouraged last weekend. Pastor Tom had a training session for our small group leaders, and I was encouraged just by the number of small group leaders that came. And and I needed to see it. I'm going to be honest with you. I needed to see that. And I was thinking, small groups, our connection groups have always been the lifeblood, if you will, of, of the way we do ministry at faith. And now we're being uh, uh, called to attention greater now than ever before. And our small group leaders are rising to that challenge. They are engaging with their people and, and creating uh, um, environments of many shepherding clusters for the health of the body. And of course, we will press outward with compassion. We're going to resist the temptation, as I am often faced with, to give in to the pressure to freak out about our times. We see some numbers go down, both in attendance and money and all these sorts of things, and it is so easy to just say, what are we going to do? The first thing we're not going to do is the co- coach calls us to a huddle. We're not going to give in to the pressure. We're not going to freak out about this. We're going to have to start calling a few things like they are. We're going to have to have more conversations with the body about what things really look like and what we're doing next. But one thing we're going to do, and I hope I've been leading by example in this. And if you talk to your friends and, and uh, family and others who have said we 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 left and we talked to Pastor Brent, I, you could press them on perhaps the way that that was handled. Because what I've strived to do, said, oh, is it striven, strived? What are you supposed to say? Got an English one out? I've always say strived. Is that okay? We'll go with it. Hashtag bad grammar. That's what we'll say. What I have been striving to do, I know how to use that word in the sentence, is to send people off with what I really believe about their convictions, what I really believe about the years of service that they have offered to the kingdom, Instead of making this about me or us, to let them know that they are valued by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I heard a song on the way in this morning, one that we sing here and, and uh, even so come, I believe it is. And uh, in the chorus, it says, um, like a bride waiting for her groom, we will be a church ready for you. And as I heard that, I was like, would I be able to stand next to my brothers and sisters as Jesus is returning, whether they're in my physical location or another one and recognize the fact that they have contributed to the kingdom, that they are saints in the same family that I am as well. And that eventually we will be ushered before the throne of the living God. Is that how I'm going to be caught? If you will, by jesus return so i err on the side of not duking it out with my well-meaning disagreeing brothers and sisters there have been some times of correction it's not phony it's not oh you're fine just go right ahead we hash it out we talk plainly but it will never diminish my respect for who they are and how we can disagree and love each other still like siblings And we will engage with one another in order to provide for them, not us. Let's do that as a hard calling. Our service is for them, for the others. I'm not even just talking about the, the crowd that we were just talking about. I mean, as everybody in our midst, what are we doing for you? What are you doing for someone else? Peter is saying we need to settle our hearts on tenaciously giving our lives to serve those around us while giving up our own demands for a safe life. And we're going to have to put our money and our practice where our mouth is if this is going to be our mission. And lastly, in this little phrase here, I think that Peter is saying that this is what settles our accounts. We drain our accounts with our actions. We drain our accounts with taking our eyes off of Jesus Christ. How do we settle that account? How do we come in and meet that debit? This way, he says in verse 11, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, that God may be glorified in everything that we do to him, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Peter knows the futility of striving for self-credit. He was the first guy to wave his hands. Jesus, pick me. Jesus, pick me. He was in the front row to give the right answer every time Jesus asked a question. He understands what it's like to fall on your face, striving for self-credit. Instead, he says, may the glory of everything that we do right go to him. And there is an abundance of that glory available. That's what that phrase, through Jesus Christ Means. Remember when we were back in chapter 3 verse 22, we understood that Jesus went through all this and rose victorious and now sits at the right hand of the Father with all authority over angels, authorities, and powers. They're all under His feet. We yield ourselves when we, when we do what we're called, what we're built to do, which is love above all things. When the coach says, now listen, above everything else, I want you to love earnestly. And when we do those things, when we do what we're built and called to do, the effect of our service is eternal. What we accomplish in 2020 or 2021, we don't know. But we know that the effect of what we do is eternal. And that settles our account because we're living for his glory. Peter's saying, settle your mind, get sober. Set your affections in your hearts towards the needs of others and practice it. And allow the glory of God to be the shining thing that comes from your life. So Peter is saying that the pressure of these last few seconds on the clock should should produce in our midst bonds of community, support in a way that defends each other and stands up for one another, and sacrificial service and if we're being honest, there's an excitement that comes from that because now we're living for a mission bigger than ourselves. And, and human beings are always drawn by the thing that's bigger than them. It's that hole that God created in us to worship something. And so Jesus is calling us through Peter to a mission bigger than ourselves because everything about this is going against our flesh. It, it, it invokes fear, but it's a bigger than us mission And the excitement that comes from giving ourselves to it is unparalleled. Will you pray with me? Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing us to this text. I thank you every week, Lord, for bringing us this letter through Peter. Thank you that he came around. Thank you that he wasn't stuck in his sin. Thank you he wasn't stuck in his failure. But what you produced in him was something he couldn't have manufactured. And now it's this great benefit and glory to the church for decades to follow, for centuries that followed. Help us, Lord, to hear your instruction as the as the game is coming to an end. Help us, Lord, to be serious and to be ready so that when we see you face to face, we know that we left it all out on the court. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.